Now, I think everybody has in their mind a picture of what Jesus was like. He certainly was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as Isaiah predicted. But I also think there was a real element of fun in Jesus. I think he was fun to be around. I think, for instance, of the nicknames he gave people. And they weren't serious nicknames. I'm sure they caused a snicker. And if I snicker 2,000 years later, I'm sure the other disciples got a kick out of it when Jesus renamed the sons uh, of Zebedee, when he called them the sons of thunder, because they wanted to call fire down from heaven and roast, barbecue the Samaritans. So he goes, I'm going to give you guys a new name. You are now Sons of Thunder. And I'm sure the other disciples went, (coughs) they loved it. Peter was renamed. He was called Peter. His first name was Simon. And he was given the name a little stone. Peter's problem is that he thought he was a massive rock. As some have misinterpreted the scripture, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, as if they say to infer that Peter was the foundation of the church. Folks, nothing could be further from the truth. Even Peter himself said it wasn't true. Even Paul himself said it wasn't true. No other foundation can any man lay than what has already been laid, Jesus Christ. We are all living stones built upon the foundation. But Peter thought, there was a time when Peter thought, I am rocky. I am immovable. You can count on me, Jesus. And of course, Peter finds out sadly in this case that it's not so. It is Passover season. And again, it'd be great being around Jesus. He said to them, go into the city. When you go in, you're going to see a guy carrying a pitcher of water. And you're going to go up to him and say, Make the room ready. The master, you know, is ready for the Passover. Find that guy, just say these words to him, and he'll lead you to the place, and you make ready right there. You know, think of it. You need to pay taxes. You're out of money. Jesus says, go down to the Sea of Galilee. Get a fish. The first fish you get, open its mouth, you'll have enough money to pay taxes. Handy to have around. (laughs) Always the master of every situation. And now, setting up the Passover. The disciples make it ready. They sit down and have the Pesach, the Passover meal. They go through the order of service. Jesus uses the paradigm of the bread and the wine to signify his covenant made by his body and in his blood. He predicts his betrayer is at hand, Judas given one of the places of honor at the Last Supper because Jesus said he will dip the sop, which meant Judas was next to Jesus, just as John was on the other side as he lay his head on his bosom. And then afterwards, after the supper is ended, they go down to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now in verse 35, we didn't really finish that, but let's kind of get this as segueing into our section tonight that we really want to cover. And he said to them, when I sent you out with a, without a money bag, I, uh, when I sent you without money bag, sack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they answered, nothing. 
Then he said to them, But now, but now, that was then. I sent you for a short week of missions, so to speak. I sent you out around the Sea of Galilee. I told you to go without anything. Just trust and let the houses provide for you wherever you go. And that was good. You didn't lack anything. But now, he who has money, a money bag, let him take it. Likewise, a sack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, that, that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Look, Lord, here's two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. He is on his way now from the upper room in the upper city, and he's walking downhill past the temple area, down through a valley called the Kidron Valley at the base of the slope of another hill called the Mount of Olives to a special place that Jesus always went, the Garden of Gethsemane. It is holy ground. So much is going on in this episode. It is a battle that is going on with an unseen foe. Peter is also having a battle. Remember last week we read that Peter said, listen, Lord, though everybody forsakes you. Verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter's biggest enemy was Peter. Oh, it's the devil. I know he's the enemy of everyone. But, you know, Dwight L. Moody used to say that the one person in the world he said I have the most problems with is Dwight L. Moody. How often we say, the devil did this, the devil did that, the devil. You know, our biggest enemy is often our own flesh. Peter was so overconfident. You can count on me, Lord. I'll always be there for you. Just whistle and I'll be there, Lord. And he was overconfident. He was waging a battle within himself. And it really was a losing battle. Jesus predicted that he would fall, but that he would recover. But he was certain that he wouldn't fall and he, you know, you have to read all the gospel accounts, but it was as if Peter said, Lord, how could you say that? You should know me better than that. Jesus did know him so well. That's why he could predict that he would fall. I read a story of a general who said, in every battle, in every battle, there is a decisive few minutes where you are making critical choices. And it is in that little section of time that the battle is won or lost. You make some quick little choices, quick little commands, and it's in that few moments of time that the battle is won or lost. It's like a teeter-totter. It could go either way. By the choices that you make, there's a battle going on inside Peter. There's a battle going on in the Garden of Gethsemane with what Jesus is going through. The battle was won for us. Not just at the cross, but in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Not my will, but yours be done. And he surrenders now to the cross. Back in the Garden of Eden, there was also a battle. And Adam made a choice. Eve made it, then Adam made it. It was the wrong choice. They failed in their choice. Now Jesus is in the Garden. He takes his disciples there. 
When he came to the place, he said to them, let's read through it and we'll go back over a few points. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony. He prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Leaving the upper room and going to the Garden of Gethsemane was exactly what Judas counted on. It says that Jesus was accustomed to going to the Mount of Olives. Another gospel says he would always go to this garden. It was a common hangout place for Jesus. Judas knew exactly the pattern of Jesus and had prearranged to get some Roman soldiers to come in and arrest Jesus and to betray him and sell him over to the Roman guard. Jesus would have probably, though I can't be sure of this, but I have taken the route and tried to recount the steps. I began one night, late at night, probably 11 o'clock, late into the night. And I started up in the upper area of Jerusalem, where we think the upper room is. And I didn't tell anybody where we were going. I just took a couple friends with me. It was our first time to Israel. And so we walked through the upper city, went down to the temple area, which would be right over to our left, took the road that goes right around the front of the Temple Mount, walked on a little sheep path over the Kidron Brook, and then over into the Garden of Gethsemane. We were just among olive trees and probably 11.45, almost midnight. And I said, hey, have any idea where we are? And they said, we were hoping you knew where we were. <laughs> and I said, I do, but just take a guess. And they said, I don't know. I said, you're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they go, oh, wow. It's awesome. Jesus walked over a river that was filled with blood because the sacrifices that were being slaughtered in the temple were drained through a stone conduit that ran underneath that mountain, through it, and dumped into the river of Kidron. And there was a little bridge that went over that valley. Can you just picture and feel the symbolism? 256,000 lambs were slain during Passover. And here the Lamb of God crosses over that river of blood. No more will that blood flow. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. But that's all right. The Lamb of God died to take away the sin of all the world in a once and for all act on Calvary. His blood would be sufficient so that there would have to be no more lambs being slain. But here's Jesus walking outside of Jerusalem over the Kidron Valley. Now, I can't help but think of another king who walked over the Kidron Valley. He walked over the brook Kidron and outside of Jerusalem. His name? David. When he fled from his son Absalom. And the scripture says David and his men walked over the brook Kidron and went out toward the wilderness, which would be in the same direction going east. Now, Jesus is called the son of David. That's his covenant name. And what an analogy we have. Both of these were throneless kings. David would come back to sit on his throne. 
Jesus will one day be back to sit on his throne. Both were rejected kings, having only a band of men following them. Rejected by his own people, David left. Rejected by the Jewish nation, Jesus goes over that brook, only to be back in a few hours under the judgment. The word Gethsemane means olive press. It is where olives were smashed to extract the oil and the juices from them for the lamps of that day. Again, I think a picturesque word speaking of the pressing that Jesus would undergo during that time. Now, uh, it's not here, but it says in verse 40, He came to the place and said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Mark tells us that Jesus sort of divided up the disciples. You remember that? He took who? Peter, James, and John aside from the other eight. Uh, This is what is happening. There's one of them that is gone. He's making a transaction with the Romans. That's Judas. Eight of them are alone. Jesus said pray. But he took Peter, James, and John alone closer to watch the agony that he was going through as his closest friends. Luke tells us that there were three occasions where Peter, James, and John had sort of an intimate glimpse of the personal life of Jesus, where he took them aside on three special occasions. Do you remember what they were? The first one was with Jairus' daughter in Capernaum. She lay dead. And Jesus demonstrated the power over death by raising her from the dead. Peter, James, and John got to see it. The others didn't. The second time was on the Mount of Transfiguration up by Caesarea Philippi. Peter, James, and John were taken by the Lord and he was transfigured before them. And there appeared with him Moses and Elijah, speaking about the departure or the exodus that Jesus would undergo in Jerusalem. And the last one was here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now there's something that all three of these appearances have in common. Death. The first one, Jesus proved that he conquered and was victorious over death by raising her from the dead. The second one was Jesus being glorified through his death in Jerusalem and looking forward into the kingdom. And thirdly, in the garden, Jesus surrenders to his own death. Now, I think it's, it is interesting and I think it's important because the first martyr of the church was James. He was beheaded. The last martyr of the of the uh, apostles was, we think, John. After his exile in Patmos, he was martyred for his faith. Peter was killed somewhere in between, undergoing persecution and being crucified upside down in Rome. So no doubt all of these experiences served in the future for their own edification as they would learn these lessons. Jesus takes them and prays. He said, pray that you may not enter temptation. He was withdrawn from them a stone's throw and he knelt down And he prayed, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, why a garden? I don't want to read too much into it, but I can't help but think of something else. Jesus is called by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, the last Adam. The last Adam. He said the first Adam was a living being. He was created as such. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. Speaking of Jesus, the one who gives life. Adam is the first Adam. The last Adam is Jesus. Adam was in a garden. The Garden of Eden is where humanity began. It's where sin began. 
Now, in the end, for those of us who are believers, the climax of our history will be in a garden city where there's a river of life proceeding from the throne of God and the tree of life on either side bearing 12 kinds of fruit. In between the Garden of Eden where sin began and the garden in heaven where sin will be completely ended and obliterated was another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where that battle was waged and the outcome was waged there by the choices that the last Adam made. The first Adam had a choice in the garden and he made the wrong choice. He chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The last Adam made the right choice. He chose the cross, the tree of life. He is battling with an unseen foe. It is tough. Jesus is expressing his feelings. And for some of us, it's even shocking as he's saying, I don't want to go through this. If it is your will, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of affliction, the cup of separation. Can you imagine what Jesus is going through? I can't. Some of you have a slight idea. Some of you have been abandoned. Perhaps you remember a time when your parents were divorced or maybe even your parents walked out on you. Maybe some of you say, I don't even remember my parents. They abandoned me when I was a kid. Others have been abandoned by a spouse. But imagine the feeling of separation. First of all, of Jesus coming to this earth and becoming a man, but the ultimate separation. On the cross, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Paul said Jesus became sin for us. And in that state, he experienced that separation so that you wouldn't have to experience it for all of eternity. It's interesting, on the cross, the only time that Jesus did not call God his Father was in that phrase. At first he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. At the end he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But in that period where he felt that ultimate separation of becoming sin for us, he did not call his Father, Father. But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here in the garden he's expressing that separation that he will ultimately feel upon the cross. It's that battle that is being waged. Now do you remember... In the wilderness, Satan came to Jesus and tried to tempt him and showed him all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus basically said, get lost. You know. And uh, it says, Satan left him. Do you remember the next phrase? Until he had an opportune time. When did he come again? Well, he came again in Caesarea Philippi through the advice of Peter. When Jesus said, I am going to the cross, I will be rejected, I will be beaten, I will be killed. And Peter stood up, you know, trying to like, look, I got the first answer right. Watch this, guys. Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Sorry. (laughs) Get thee behind me, Satan? Oh, yes. He'd heard that advice before in the wilderness. Because when Satan tempted Jesus the first time, it was as if he said, you don't have to go the way of the cross. You came for the world, I'll give it to you. Just bow down and worship me, it's all yours. Just like that. You don't have to go through suffering. Peter again advised him. No way, Lord. This won't happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. I've heard that advice before. And now it was coming even through Peter. The third time was here in the garden. Though it's not recorded, you can hear it in the voice of Jesus. 
Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Martin Luther said of this passage, he said, this passage puzzled me so much that he had to go into seclusion. And he went alone for a period of time to just understand what this meant. And he came back as puzzled and befuddled as when he went in seclusion. Because of this strange transaction that was going on in the words of Jesus Christ, And it says his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, the only guy that records this is Luke, and that figures, doesn't it? He's a doctor. And he kind of sees some of these medical details, and so he would record it. It could be that he was simply saying the sweat, as it fell to the ground, had the appearance like there were big sweat drops, big clots that looked like blood drops. Or he could be referring, and probably was, to a rare medical disease. Doesn't happen often, but it is a phenomenon known as hematidrosis. People who have been known to be in severe emotional states or have a chronic blood condition have been known to exhibit this. And that is where the tiny blood vessels, the capillaries, have burst into the sweat glands and it's sweat laced with blood. And so the sweat itself has a mixture of blood in it. That's probably what he's referring to, indicating a high degree of emotional stress and anxiety. When he rose up from prayer, he had come to his disciples, and does this surprise you? He found them sleeping from sorrow. You know, there are some people when they have difficult circumstances, they can't sleep. I'm the opposite. If things are really bad, it's just like, man, I get really drowsy. Those kinds of emotional experiences just wear me out, and I just nod out easily. And they were confused, and they were sorrowful. Thus, they were asleep in the garden. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Now, before we move on, just compare once again Adam. The first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam was in a garden, and because of his sin... The curse was that by the sweat of his brow, he would live. The second Adam in the garden, he surrenders himself to the will of the Father and sweats those great drops of blood that would end the toil of man ultimately and secure for us salvation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now I read this and I think, you know, for being around Jesus for three and a half years, I don't think he really understood Jesus. Okay, let's bring a bunch of troops, a whole company of Roman soldiers. Why? What do you think, Jesus is going to run? Jesus is going to try to hide in the garden somewhere? Or Jesus is going to say, come on, I'll fight you. Maybe he supposes Jesus is going to perform some miracle. And if he was, would the troops help? Would they be able to fight against the power of God? See, Judas, it's like he didn't have a clue. He was around Jesus all of this time. And, you know, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Here's a guy who was around Jesus three and a half years 
close, intimate, saw, listened, observed. He knew he could betray Jesus. His heart was so hardened, he was a ripoff. He was a thief. He was a hypocrite. Well, if I could see Jesus, some people say, if I could see Jesus, then I believe. He saw him and he didn't. And he saw all the miracles and he heard all the messages. Bringing a detachment of troops now to the garden. And he betrays him with a kiss. Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now remember, Jesus said, if you don't have a sword, go get one. We have two of them. It's enough. And now it's like, why did he say that? They're trying to figure this out. Here comes the troops. Now the time? Can we be the militia now, Jesus? Can we charge? Can we beat them up in your name? And one of them, who was that? Peter, another gospel tells us, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Remember last week we talked about Peter's most embarrassing moments? One of which was in Caesarea Philippi when he said, No way, Lord, we're not going to let you go to the cross. And Jesus said, Excuse me, get behind me, Satan. I think this is the other most embarrassing moment. Peter is going to defend God with a sword. Don't worry, God. Let me take care of this. You just stand back. Now, Peter was a fisherman, and we thank God for it. Because had he been a skilled swordsman, he would have hit his target, which was probably the decapitation of this guy. I think it was aiming to just take his head off. But he was a fisherman. He wasn't a skilled swordsman. He missed, got his ear. And Jesus has to clean up the situation. Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priest, the captains of the temple, and to the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and with clubs? Now let's retrace so far Peter's steps. His first mistake was self-confidence. You can count on me. I'm ready to die with you. I'm not going to deny you. I'm not a flake like other disciples. You gave me the name Peter. I'm going to live up to it. You can count on me. Self-confidence. Then we read a little bit further on and we see that they were sleeping. And even Peter was sleeping, the other Gospels tell us. So his second mistake after self-confidence was slack in his personal devotion, in his prayer, in his trust. Have you noticed that a person who is self-confident feels like, well, listen, I don't need to trust God as much. I'll make it through the day. I didn't read my Bible today. It's no big deal. I won't die over it. So I miss my praying for a while. So what? I'll, I'll make it. A self-confident person always ends up in slacking off in that time of devotion. He doesn't see himself as dependent upon his God as much. Third step, then, after self-confidence, after slacking off in your devotion, is sort of a feverish overcompensation in one's service to try to make up for it. Peter is impulsive, rips out the sword, and what is he trying to do? Well, he's trying to prove verse 33. He said, I'll die with you. 
And now it's like, okay, I'm going to prove it. Now I told him, and you know, he said, I'm going to fall. I'm, I'll show him. I'll show him that I'm faithful. Pulls out a sword. And he goes after Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and he takes off his ear. I think I've seen it. When a person loses touch with Jesus Christ, loses contact, loses intimacy, and he starts getting pulled farther and farther away from God, oftentimes to cover up the guilt, that person will overcompensate. I'm going to get busy, 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 busy for God now. I've been away from God for so long. A a woman came up to G. Campbell Morgan, the great British preacher, and she said, Oh, my heart is stirred within me. I feel, feel like there's a lapse in my devotion to Jesus Christ. I haven't been close to him lately. And I think I'm going to get involved in the Sunday school department. What do you think? He said, a thousand times no. Until your own heart is right with God, leave the children alone. But some people, to overcompensate and they feel guilty, think, okay, now I'm just going to get busy. I'm all for involvement. I'm all for getting busy. But I'm all for getting busy when God prompts you to get busy. I don't walk up to people, I think you've noticed this, and just say, you know, I want you to start this, and I want you to start that, and I'm going to call you and get you involved in this. Maybe some of you are waiting. When is Skip going to call me and ask me to get involved in this special ministry? He won't. Because I'm not the Holy Spirit, and you can thank God for that. (laughs) I'll wait for God to prompt you. And I have no problem with a person coming in and just sitting in the dugout for a while and letting the coach, Jesus, just minister to you, build you up, strengthen you. There'll be a time when you'll feel the nudging of the Holy Spirit saying, first base, shortstop, outfield. He'll start calling those shots and you'll feel that spirit-led impulse to get out. Better the Holy Spirit do it than me or anybody else. Peter takes out the sword. Come on, I'm going to work. I'm going to work. Misses. Jesus said, permit even this. He touched his ear and healed him. Isn't that interesting? His last healing was taking care of the blinding zeal of one of his blundering disciples. The last recorded miracle is here. It wasn't a flashy miracle. It wasn't in front of thousands. TV cameras weren't on him. Just a few people saw it. And it was for his enemies. I love that. Oh, the grace and the compassion of Jesus. He could have said, serves you right. Live with it. Instead, Jesus healed him. Isn't that the ultimate love? Jesus said, if you love just those who love you, big deal. But love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Bless those who curse you. I think that's the true test of love, don't you? So often we see a lack of love in the church, which means there's got to be even much more lack. It's really not good English, but we see a greater lack than toward our enemies. And here Jesus is healing this guy's ear. He says, you come out as a robber with swords and clubs. When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of of darkness. Then having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed at a distance. You might call this his fourth step, being ashamed. Being ashamed. Try to cover it up and overcompensate with zeal and 
feverish service unto the Lord. Now he's following Jesus still, but he's a little farther than he was. He's following him at a distance. And I don't want to spiritualize this too much, but I think this is always a step. I've heard this attitude from so many people. I'll say, man, I haven't seen you in a long time. Well, I haven't been around much. Well, how come? Well, I'll tell you the truth. I've blown it, man. Okay. Yeah, and I just don't, you know, I, I, I've blown it. I don't, feel, I don't feel worthy. I feel that since I've blown it, you know, I, I just shouldn't come around and bother people. And, you know, my heart really wasn't in it, so I don't want to be a hypocrite. The time that you need to draw close is during that time. Not to go farther away. What if you were in a battle? And as you were in the battle, and there's bullets and bombs going off all around you, if you got wounded, would you say, man, I got wounded, I better run away. Just go run out in the jungle away from all the troops and the medics. I, you know, I got shot. I'm no use to them anymore. I'll just go out and die in the jungle. No, you're going to find your men. You're going to find your troops. You're going to find your company. You're going to need the medevacs. You're going to need help at that time. Don't follow at a distance. But self-confidence leads to lack of devotion, leads to feverish service, blindly done in zeal, leads to following afar off. I've seen this so often as a step away from Jesus Christ. And then comes compromise. Let's look at it. When they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Hmm. Interesting, Peter. You wouldn't have been caught dead in the camp of your enemies a week ago. Now you're warming yourself by their fires. Why this compromise? And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him. This man was also with him. I think, at this point, Peter could have gladly choked this girl. Here he was, you know, he's kind of just in stealth. He's kind of in the background, in the shadows. Jesus is there and he's following him, but afar off. Didn't want anybody to see him. He's kind of cold, so he's warming himself by their fires. And he thinks, I'll just kind of wait it out. Somebody goes, you're with him. And his defenses automatically went up and he thought, who is this girl? How does she know that? Of course, he denies it. He denied him, saying, woman, I don't know him. After a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Notice his denial each time becomes more vehement. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. How'd she know that? Right, he had an accent. Galileans, they were the backwaters of Israel. They didn't speak with the refined tongue of the Jerusalemites. You could tell a Galilean, just like you can tell somebody from the south. They have an accent. You've heard people talk. I'm not going to pick on any one uh, accent. But you can tell when you hear. I can tell a, a, a Midwestern accent like Michigan or Chicago or New York or Boston. Or Then there's the south and there's Texas. And they have their accent. And... Uh, the people in Jerusalem thought the Galileans were hicks. Because they, you know, it's kind of like talking with an accent, you know, to them. And, and so when Peter would talk, they said, hey, you're a Galilean, aren't you? We could tell by your, you, but, you butchered the language. No offense. 
But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. One step leads to another. Peter, who was following Jesus, is now in a company that he wouldn't be with. He's with another crowd. You know, it's always dangerous to feel too comfortable around the world's crowd. Don't get me wrong by that. I'm not saying you should divorce yourself completely from being around non-believers because you'd have to live in the middle of nowhere to do that because they're everywhere. And Jesus wants you with them so that you can be the salt of the earth. But when you're too comfortable with them, with their language, with their antics, with their jokes, you're warming yourself at their fires because your own heart has grown cold. It's always a sign of danger. And one step always leads to another. Peter's taking those downward steps. Psalm 1 has the same kind of digression. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Notice the slowing down. First you're walking, then you stand, then you sit with them. And Peter is sitting among them, warming himself at their fires. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out, and he wept bitterly. Now let me just step in for a moment on Peter's defense. I'm retracing his steps, and a lot of times we badmouth Peter. Look at that guy, deny Jesus. Hey, he was there at least. The others had split. They weren't even in the distance. They were gone. At least Peter was there. And this, yes, he fell to the temptation. But this is not the kind of temptation that a coward falls under, because he was there, unlike the other disciples. But what a change. You know, Peter said, you know, he felt so strong one day. I can take whatever temptation it is, no problem. Now he's cringing when a little girl asks him a question. He gets all shook up at a servant girl asking him a simple question. Weren't you one of them? No. You know, it reminds me of Elijah. You know, what a split personality in a sense. One day he can stand with... 850 false prophets and denounce them, 850 against one, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophetesses of prophets of Asher, uh, Asher, the Asherim, and uh, he's out there on Mount Carmel and he says, my God against all you guys, and he calls fire down from heaven and smokes them. Then he hears that Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, says, I'm going to kill that prophet by sundown tomorrow. And he gets so nervous, he splits all the way down to Sinai, sits under a bush and says, God, kill me. My life isn't worth living. What, what ha- what's up with that? What happened to you, Mr. Bold on the Mount of uh, Carmel? So fragile, overconfident perhaps. Peter's cringing at the questions of the servant girl. He denies Jesus. And there's Jesus, perhaps... Through a window overlooking the courtyard, looking down. And I don't think it was a look like, told you so. You know, there is a body language. You know, a look can say a lot of things. You don't have to say a word. You could look at a person like this. I don't think Jesus looked at him that way. I think it was a look of compassion. 
It was a look of forgiveness. And Peter remembered the prediction of Jesus and he went out and wept bitterly. And the Greek word is a convulsive kind of a weeping to throw oneself down to the ground and audibly weep is the idea. He was remorseful. That was his turning point. That was his turning point. Peter, Satan has been asking for you. When you are returned, strengthen your brethren. You can't return unless you leave. And you're going to leave, Peter. And he takes these six, five or six steps downwards. But there's only one step that you have to take back. Isn't that great? You may take 10, 20, 30 steps away from God. And God doesn't say, go retrace your steps. Got to take everyone back. You can't come to me right away. You know, that's important. I had a friend who went to a church. And he only went there once, thank God. But he went up at the altar call. And as he went up, he said, I want to give my life to Jesus. And the pastor looked at him and said, I don't think you really do. I do. I want to repent of my sins. No, I don't really think you do. You can't tonight. You come back next week. See, if you're really sincere. He came to me. What should I do? I said, number one, never go there again. Number two, you can come to Jesus right now. It's only one step back, that step of repentance, turning. And I think Peter made that step at this point. It's like the prodigal son all over again, isn't it? Remember the prodigal son? He said, man, I'm going to go back to my father. I've been dumb out here eating pig food. Maybe my father will make me a hired servant. What did his father do when he saw him coming in the distance? He ran and grabbed him and hugged him, put a ring on his finger, a robe on him, sandals on his feet, and said, let's have a big party. My son is found who was lost, and he who was dead is now alive. And instantly and immediately brought him back. Jesus is willing to do that with anyone who will come. You might say, well, that's Peter. God bless him. But I could never sink that low. 1 Corinthians 10 says you can. In fact, you are the most vulnerable if you think that you could never fall away. He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. Having blindfolded him and struck him on the face, they asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? Many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. Let me just tell you about the trial of Jesus. You kind of picture that there was one trial of Jesus before his crucifixion. There were not. How many were there? There were six. Six separate trials that Jesus had to go through before he was finally condemned to death at the cross. The first one was when he stood before Annas, the high priest, who was the former high priest, but he was still recognized because of his status in Israel. After he stood before Annas. He stands before Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, and the high priest in reality at the time. After he met with Caiaphas, he stands before the whole Jewish Senate, the Sanhedrin of 70 ruling elders. After that, because the Jews did not have the right of capital punishment, they couldn't put anybody to death without the sanction of the Roman government, he went to Pontius Pilate. 
Pontius Pilate wanted to weasel out of it. He didn't want to make a choice. And he said, whose jurisdiction is he from? They said, oh, he's from Galilee. That means he's Herod's jurisdiction. So he sent him to Herod. Herod didn't want to have anything to do with him. He sent him back to Pilate. And that final or sixth trial, he finally gave in to the Jewish elders' decision. He said, crucify him. But it was after six separate trials. The elders of the people, both chief priests, scribes, came together and led him to their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. They all said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said, you say rightly that I am. Now, when he talked about himself as the Son of Man, you know what he's referring to? One of the Messianic titles is the Son of Man. But he was referring to a specific instance in Scripture, Daniel chapter 7. Let me read it to you. I had a place in it. Oh, yeah, I do still. Great. Daniel chapter 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Jewish people for years saw that as a reference to the coming of the Messiah to Israel. And so when Jesus said, hereafter the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God, they thought Daniel 7. He said, now are you saying you're the Son of God? He said, yep. I am claiming the fulfillment of that promise and that prophecy in me. That's why they said in verse 71, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now that concludes the chapter and... We don't want to get into a new one since our time's up. Ended right on time. But, but back to Peter for just a moment. We made reference this morning to the church of Ephesus, and I want to refer to it again. Here's a group that could spot false prophets. They were doctrinally sound. They knew the Bible. They were busy, busy, busy about their involvement. And as you read the list of uh, attributes that Jesus commends them for, you think, man, this church is red hot. It's on fire. Nothing wrong with this church. But Jesus speaks about an attitude. He goes beyond, beneath the surface of how many things do you have in your bulletin? Do you know theology? Can you defend the faith down to a passion that they lost? He said, nevertheless, I have something against you. You don't love me like you did at first, says one translation, or as the King James says, you have left your first love. I hear that misquoted. I hear people say, the Bible says, Jesus said to this church, you have lost your first love. You don't lose it, you leave it. Hebrews chapter 2. Give more earnest heed to the things that you have heard, lest at any time we should slip away from them. Maybe tonight you recognize, like Peter, that holy passion has left. You've grown thing. You've grown cold to the things of God. You feel very comfortable around the world's crowd. 
You can warm yourself at their fire a lot more easily than you can with believers. You're following Jesus. Yeah, I believe he exists, but you're following him afar off. Maybe you've made the same mistakes. You're self-confident, which has led to a slack in devotion, which perhaps has led to episodes of feverish activity, which has led to being ashamed, which has led to compromise, which has led or perhaps will lead to denial. Many steps back, one step forward to Jesus Christ. One step to him. That's what Jesus said to that church of Ephesus. Therefore, repent. Well, that's supposed to be for unbelievers, right? Repentance. Interesting, before a service, when we get together to pray, you will often hear a person say, Oh, Lord, and we pray for them tonight. Pray for those unbelievers. And we do. It's good to pray for them, although that they'd come in repentance. But I often undermine, Oh, Lord, we pray for your church. That if need be, they would repent. For Jesus told the church to repent. And I think it's an ongoing process. Whenever the Holy Spirit pokes at something in your life that isn't right, and He reveals something to you and says, Now, turn from that and come closer. It's incumbent upon us to do that and to make that choice. 